This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles. This is the finish line. The Stanford Racing Team has made its way into the history books. But the most important thing for me is, uh, it actually doesn't matter who comes first. It matters that we as a, as a community achieve it. Early in the technology, uh, a thousand flowers should bloom. Welcome back to Season 2 of Smarter Cars. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. Today we're talking about micromobility and disrupting the car with local startup founder Hong Kwan of Karmic Bikes. We discuss electric bikes, scooters, other form factors, the definition of micromobility, business models, and city infrastructure. Hong, welcome to the show. Great, thank you. So today we're talking about micromobility. Um, let's start with your company. Why did you found Karmic Bikes? So I started Karmic Bikes about four and a half years ago. And at that time, e-bikes were just becoming a big thing in Europe and Asia. But in the U.S., like e-bikes have been around for, I would say, 10 years. They're just very different. Um, the U.S. customer for an e-bike was kind of... Um, I don't know. I, I guess they weren't necessarily looking for a premium experience. And so with Karmic, we were looking to use the best technology that we could get um, and bring it to more people, meaning not necessarily traditional bike industry customers, uh, but just people who wanted a really great riding experience. And so we looked to you know technology providers uh, across the world. Uh, we actually developed a battery and you know our own unique battery at that time and then brought what is now considered a premium e-bike to the U.S. market. So that's a basically a modern battery um, and a mid-drive motor. So very high-powered, uh, really like great riding experience. And then we also created Karmic as a direct-to-consumer brand. Uh, and the idea there was not necessarily to eliminate the bike shops, but just to provide more value to our customers. Great. Um, so your bike has pedal assist, but also can be uh, operated with a throttle? No, our bikes or are just... only class one and class three, which mm -hmm. in the California passed a law. And now I think 10 or 12 states have also adopted this law. So those are all pedal, uh, pedal electric, meaning they only assist when you yourself are riding the bike. And the difference between class one and class three is simply a speed limit. So class one bikes are pedal assist up to 20 miles an hour. And it allows you to ride almost anywhere a bike can go, including bike paths and multi-use trails. And then the what we call our Coben S is the S pedal, right? It's up to 28 miles an hour. And that's usually what people use to kind of go to work. So so that one goes up to 28 miles an hour, you Yeah, said. 28 miles assisted. And how long can it go on a single charge with pedal assist? So we say... So the range varies, right? It depends on the rider, the terrain, um, how much assist they're using. We say you should typically expect between 40 and 50 miles of range uh, using, you know, uh, a range of boost. If you use the top level boost all the time, you might get 30 miles. Mm -hmm. um, but for most people, they still want to ride the bike like it's a bike. Uh, they just want a little bit of help or what we say, kind of the feeling of having a tailwind at all times. <laughs> how much does your bike weigh? Um, I think our S is actually the lighter of the two uh, because we use a bit more premium products on it, like a carbon fork and things like that. Uh, it's about 44 pounds, which is quite light for an e-bike. It, it sounds like a lot for a bicycle, but in the range of e-bikes, I think 
you know, we were one of the lightest on the market and we still are one of the lightest offerings because I think most of them are kind of in the 50, 60, 70 pounds. And do people take e-bikes onto the train or put them on the front of a bus? Is it, can they be used that way like regular bikes? Yeah, definitely. I think they they should be used like a regular bike. So I've seen people use them on Caltrain. It's great for a multimodal Um you know, these are all personally owned bikes, so people do, you know, take them home, take them in the office and things like that, uh, versus like a shared bike that sits out. And is the battery removable? Yeah. We made a conscious decision to make the battery removable because a lot of our customers live and work in the city. And so you don't necessarily have like a nice garage to roll your bike into. So you can leave your bike down in kind of a shared parking or, you know, locked up and then take the battery out. And the reason is the battery's the most expensive part of the bike. Uh, and that's the part that, you know, you want to take care of, you want to store indoors, you want to, you know, be able to charge it at your desk, you know, things like that. Great. So what is the length of trip that you think an electric bike works best for? And, you know, how does that potentially replace car trips? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think the way we think about it when we design is, uh, we purposely made the battery a certain size, right, to get you 40 to 50 miles in range. And from there, we can select what motor to use, what frame to use, what components to use, and all that. And it goes back to, like, how do you intend to use this? And so I think the ideal space on the spectrum of micromobility for electric bikes is 2 to 20. And 2 to 20 miles. 2 to 20 miles. And that's a one-way trip. So uh, at the extreme end, we've had customers who, you know, do 20, 25-mile commutes one way, and they can still get home uh, on a single charge. So that, that I would say is the upper, upper limit. Uh, the two mile mark is interesting because it's, it's just far enough that, you know, you can't walk, you can't really take a, another form like a micro a scooter or something like that, but it's not really far enough that you should be driving. And I think <laughs> even at 20, like most people will want to drive, but somewhere in between like maybe 10 miles an hour, most people should not be driving, uh, especially if they're going by themselves. And so an e-bike in that range, two to 20, depending on your, again, city where you live and traffic and things like that, is actually as fast, if not faster, than a car. For example, I used to work uh, right here uh, on the corner of Alma and Lytton, and I lived in the south end of Palo Alto. It would take me about 15 to 20 minutes to drive, depending on traffic, depending on, you know, uh, how... The lights. The lights, <laughs> the weather, whatever, some, some crazy person. Uh, and... On a bike, I can do it in maybe 18 to 20 minutes. So the bike was a little bit slower, like a regular bike. Uh, and then when I used the Karmic, it was 15 minutes every single time, door to door. 15 minutes, 15 minutes, 15 minutes. That consistency, that knowing that I don't, it doesn't matter how traffic is. It doesn't matter if you know there's an accident or something like that. I won't be late to work. Uh, was really nice. And you know, I think it's about five or six miles. Um, and it was consistent. It was just like, I like having that consistency and I like having a little fresh air too. <laughs> That's right. You, you know. get your little bit of exercise in there. Um, what are the barriers that you see to adoption of electric bikes as a mode that someone might use every day for commuting or other tasks? Yeah. There's a couple, and I think we hear about this from a lot of people who are interested in getting one, or you know, or even our Karma customers. They tell us uh, what kind of hesitations they have or had uh, before they got one. I think the number one thing is safety. 
and that it's kind of two parts. One is their personal safety or lack of bike infrastructure, lack of bike lanes, lack of bike routes or safe routes. Uh, I was the safe routes to school person for my kid's school. And I think that's a really big thing to figure out how you would actually get to work. And, and I think the home to work commute is really interesting because it's a consistent thing that you do on a daily basis. So if you take the time to like pick a good route, um, there's lots of, you know, around here at least, uh, we have <laughs> lots of safe options. The second thing is people are worried about uh, theft, so the safety of their vehicle. Uh, we kind of take it for granted that we can drive like a forty, fifty thousand dollar car and just leave it on the street, because <laughs> uh, you know, like nobody's going to steal your car. Or in the worst case scenario, if your car is stolen, like insurance will cover it. Um, so the same thing, you can get insurance for your e-bike, either under homeowner's policy or under your auto policy. So at the price points that they're currently selling in the U.S. market, I would say it's about average twenty five hundred all the way up to like five or $6,000. These are very expensive vehicles. They should be insured and they should be treated kind of like a, as a kind of a nice thing that you should take care of. Um, the reality is like we don't have a lot of theft, at least not with our customer base. I would say I remember the, the three times that customers have had their bike stolen. It's three out of you know a couple hundred, um, so at less than 1%. But uh, out of those three, like insurance covered two of them, um, and then they immediately bought another one. So that's great. <laughs> I mean, not great that we had to sell it to them, but like, it's great that they love their bike so much that they got a second one right away. Uh, and the third was actually stolen. Uh, uh, unfortunately it was stolen like right when she got the bike. So she hadn't gotten the paperwork done yet. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, it was interesting because we actually covered it. Oh. Um, but you know, three bikes, you know, out of a couple hundred, it's like, it's not as big a problem as people imagine it to be. And I think in San Francisco, particularly people are really worried about having their bike stolen. Um, but you know, and and their cars broken into. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) These are expensive things. And so, yeah, they need to be taken care of and they need to be treated, uh, as like an expensive electric vehicle. Yeah. So uh, another barrier to adoption might be, um, people's reluctance to get on a bike at all. Um, Certainly, there are folks who came out of the cycling community who now find a a time and a place when it makes sense to use an electric bike. But there are also people who just aren't comfortable riding a bike or certainly not riding a bike to work. Um, How does an electric bike get people over that hurdle or or does it? I think it does. And I think it has to be created that way. So a lot of our customers were naturally cyclists before. And I kind of think about commuters in two categories. It's funny. It's like people who have to bike commute, which we tend to ignore in the bike industry. We don't even like, we call them invisible cyclists because they don't really exist. Um, but you know, a lot of like, if you go to a fancy restaurant, you'll see out in the back, they'll have bike parking and they're not nice bikes, not in, not even in Palo Alto. They're kind of like utilitarian bikes that, you know, people need to use to get to work. Uh, and then there's, people who want a bike to work. And that's kind of the current e-bike market is those folks, right? They, they already have cars, they have alternatives, they have, uh, you know, they, they are buying a bike because they want to, not because they have to. And, and certainly they have the means to spend three or $4,000 on a bike. But I think you can design products like, we tried to do this actually a couple of years ago with the Kyoto, which is our second model. And it was to lower the barriers to cycling. And I think... Bikes in the U.S. have a very specific, like, marketing angle. They're kind of sold as, like, these, you know, lycra-clad racers. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really address the needs of a commuter bike uh, or an everyday bike. Mm 
So things like different saddle choices, different geometry, uh, different handlebars, different just setup. You know, even the tires that we use are different than what you would use on a on a kind of fancy bike that you see at Palo Alto Bicycles. So the products have to be designed to be more inclusive of more people, including people who are not cyclists, like people who don't consider themselves cyclists. Uh, if I if I recall what I read correctly, you were uh, one of the good old fashioned uh, lycra wearing cyclists. I think you were uh, head of the cycling team at Columbia. Oh boy. Uh, you, so, dug, you dug up some dirt. <laughs> so, so how did how did you feel about moving over to electric bikes in the sense that? there is a little bit of resistance among the the lycra-wearing crowd yep. to the idea of it. It's uh, it's kind of an interesting political dynamic. I think it was Alex Roy at the Micromobility Conference who said the politics around micromobility are all screwed up because you would think that the the true cyclists who are in favor of the environment and anti-car would be gung-ho about including more people in micromobility and getting more people to ride bikes, even if they are electric, but you get a little bit of hostility from cyclists toward the, toward the e-bikes. Um, how how did you feel about making that transition? It's funny. I just, I just wrote a quick blog post about it this morning and I would say there was a lot of hostility (laughs) towards e-bikes, um, particularly from the bike industry, particularly from so-called cyclists. And the irony is lost on them that, you know, this is another person on a bike riding next to you in the bike lane. Like what's wrong with that? Like, don't we want more people on our side? Like, we want more allies, right? Um, and, you know, those bike lane counters on Market Street, they don't care if you're on a regular bike or an e-bike. And I think cyclists shouldn't care either. So for me personally, like, yes, I went through this kind of transition from being a wannabe racer with all the kit and all the carbon and all that stuff to being uh, what I call an everyday cyclist. And that's a, that's a, that's a big jump. That's a big change in mentality. Um, there's also the helmet debate, which is like a big thing. Um, I think it's sort of, in the Valley at least, it's, it's sort of weird to get this kind of backlash against e-bikes because I think of it simply as an application of technology. And so I have a statement that I make that like it's kind of Alex Roy-ish in that I want people to have a reaction to it. Um, I say that given enough time, all bikes will be electric. <laughs> and people are like, what are you talking about? Because, you know, there's you know Tour de France stuff. There's like stuff that will never go electric. And I'm like, really? Do you think that? Because, you know, four years ago, yes, maybe. But we've been doing electric bike races for the last three years. And I think uh, the UCI, which is the governing body for pro cycling, is doing an electric bike race uh, this year. So yeah, I think right. I've been proven right. Well, well, we'll stay tuned. We'll, we'll come back in a few years and see, see whether you're right about that. Um, so you know, the point you're making about the debate between, you know, cyclists and, and e-bikes and having more people in a, a lane that's devoted to some sort of mobility seems to be helpful. And the safety point, you know, people talk about helmets versus no helmets mm-hmm. and that actually one of the biggest um factors for safety is how many cyclists there are on the street that actually having more cyclists creates more safety than even helmets yes how do you feel about that i used to be well i still am adamant about helmets uh when i'm riding with my kids i think it's still you know for them legally it's required and so for us as adults it's good role model 
um, or modeling behavior to wear helmets all the time. When I see other people riding hel- or with or without a helmet, I, I don't make a comment about it. Like it's not my place to decide who should or should not be wearing a helmet. Uh, as long as they're over 16, they're allowed to ride without a helmet and that's fine. It's like their personal choice and their personal safety. I think the research definitely shows, you know, and we've seen this across, you know, countries in Europe mostly, that riding helmetless is not any less dangerous or any more dangerous uh, as long as there's numbers, right? And so I think of it like fish, right? There's safety numbers. Um, if you're riding off by yourself, you're very vulnerable, whether you wear a helmet or not, because you're, you know, human flesh and bones versus 4,000 pounds of metal and steel. A helmet's not really going to do anything for you. Uh, also, helmet testing in the U.S. is very specific. It's like at certain angles, at certain speeds. Like it's not necessarily proven science that it's safer, even when you're out riding by yourself in a solo crash. Having said that, I wear one almost every time I ride, uh, but I'm also not going to let it stop me from riding like a bike share or something like that when I'm in the city and I don't have it with me. Right. So one of the uh, criticisms, I guess, around some of the micromobility forms, including e-bikes and electric scooters, which we'll get to in a minute, hmm. uh, is sort of a limited use case of what can you really do on your e-bike and so there's there's been a question around you know how much can you expand the e-bike form factor to do you know cargo bikes or something that you can have your kids with you um do you see the form expanding or what do you think the future is there i think anybody who says it's limited is is basically limited in their imagination so these forms of cargo bikes and, and kid-carrying e-bikes have already existed. We've been using them for years and years. I've had three or four of them already. Um, they're not perfect, but they work, and they've been able to replace a car for us for the most part. Um, I can use a bike you know, 80 or 90% of my week, and I still use a car once a week. I drive to San Francisco uh, once a week. And, you know, if I really wanted to, I could take my bike on Caltrain and do all that stuff. But I, I, like having a car and having the flexibility of my own schedule is important. But around town, like, the bike can do almost anything. Uh, we used to have a cargo, well, it's a, it's called a Yuba Spicy Curry. We got one of the first ones in the country. And I used to have two kids on the back of it. So I'd be one of these weirdos that ride to school <laughs> with, like, two kids in the back. And, like, you know what? I didn't really care. It was this ugly green color, and I didn't care because it, like, it was so much fun. And the conversations that I had with my kids, it was amazing. Like, I kind of miss those. Uh, we still ride to school, but they ride on their own now. Uh, but I miss it when they were younger. Um, and, you know, I have a cargo front loader right now. It's like a basket, and we take it to a library. And, like, you know, for these short trips, like, the library is, like, a mile away and it's a very small parking lot. And just to go like to the library to get some books or return some books is such a pain to take a car. And I think people don't realize it because they haven't seen the other side yet, right? Like the, the grass really is greener on this side. Um, but until you experience it, until you see what the bikes can do and what the technology is today, it's hard to convince people. So actually, one trick I have is uh, what I call my bike library. So I put all my bikes uh, out on a platform and it's available. People can borrow them. Um, essentially rent them but for friends it's free and they can try it out and with the cargo bikes particularly like if you try one I've had three of them because uh, I let friends borrow it and they don't give it back <laughs> <laughs> so I've actually sold a couple of Yubas uh, for, for those guys so you guys can thank me later um, <laughs> but when I lend out the bike and 
these parents are using it with one or two or three kids, um, they just they just like a light goes off. They have this epiphany. They're like, this is way faster than a car, especially with school. If you go to school, if you drop the drop off school, line, oh man. my goodness. <laughs> People are like, I have to drive because I want to be late to work. But guess what? You're sitting in the drop-off for t- 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah. Good luck. You're now late to work. Um, so I'm always the, the parent who like rolls up, drops the kids off, and like I get back to you know work uh, as faster than almost anybody else in the car. Yeah, someone needs to re-engineer the, the school drop-off yeah. Uh, situation. Yeah. So... You know, we're here in Palo Alto today, which is sunny most of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you handle weather in the rest of the country where it gets really cold, it's snowy, maybe it gets really hot, like 120 degrees yep. in Vegas and places like that? Uh, how how do e-bikes serve communities where the weather has more extremes than we have here in the Valley? Yeah, so I think the cold is a unique proposition because i haven't personally tried it but i've ridden an e-bike in vegas and it was like super hot <laughs> um and the electric assist was a godsend because like you wouldn't want to ride a regular bike out there at you know and vegas is lacking in infra- infrastructure uh sorely lacking compared to palo alto so an e-bike could definitely help get more people riding in those weather extremes because the activity of riding a bike alone, like a regular bike in extreme weather is kind of difficult. So an e-bike kind of helps, you know, ease that to some degree. The downside about the cold is like the batteries are a little bit less range in the cold. We know that for a fact. Um, But there's certainly things you can do to mitigate the weather, right? So fenders, uh, lights to be seen at night or in foggy weather. Um, There's just wonderful materials that you can use now, like Gore-Tex and Shake Dry and things like that. Uh, again, I'm not trying to promote other products, but like, <laughs> you know, I've had a Gore-Tex jacket from uh, the mid nineties versus like a modern Gore-Tex jacket from today. It's like world's different. Uh, it keeps you completely dry. keeps you sweat free. And with the e-bike too, you're not working as hard uh, to get the same speeds. So you don't really get the extremes of like, you know, overheating or, or profusely sweating when you get to work and you're like all, all gross. Um, but yeah, the weather is not, it shouldn't be an impediment because we see people riding bikes around the world in extremes. Like there's this thing called, uh, on Twitter particularly, I love seeing the pictures of Viking biking. <laughs> and so it's like freezing cold, like snow on the ground. And they have a shot of like uh, a school and it's hundreds and hundreds of bikes on the racks. Because like Damn, it doesn't these stop Scandinavians, them. you know. They... You know, like <laughs> it's something in the blood. I don't know, but like. You can you can bundle up. You can wear you know again if you don't have to wear a helmet, you can wear a nice, comfy, like warm hat, right? So, I think if you can be outside, if you have the gear to like walk outside in the rain and like in the cold, or like people don't complain about what they have to wear to go to Tahoe, um, you can ride in those same clothes, right? It shouldn't have to be like a reason that you stop riding. All right, so you're one of these. There's no bad weather. There's just bad clothing, people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, again, we're lucky to have kind of the modern fabrics and stuff that we have today. Yeah, you know, people always point to Finland on any range yes. of issues, and and also Canada. Yeah. And uh, I guess we'll we'll never be uh, quite a, quite as good. I, I don't really see Americans getting religion on riding in I think you're right. snow. Yeah. It's, it's a different culture. And it's, it's a completely to... different culture. And the question is, how long will it take for us to adjust? Um, there is kind of snow biking, but again, people do it for fun, right? Because it is a unique experience. Actually, if I think back to my high school days, I did do uh, snow and ice rides. And that's a blast. 
<laughs> it's it's so much fun but like you're not out there to like you don't do it because you have to and so that right. kind of points back to the difference between like people who commute because they want to and people who commute because they have to um and the other thing the other story is like in i was in new york last year uh in kind of late december early january and i was walking around like in brooklyn park slope like super nice neighborhood right really like rich area and the only people out on bikes were the Chinese food delivery guys. Mm. And I was like, these guys are not out here because they want to ride their bikes, right? Yeah. They're out here because they have to, and everybody's ordering in, right? <laughs> so you're not, you're not going to start offering uh, heated seats and handlebars for the, uh, the East Coast crowd? Well, my wife wants heated handlebar grips for sure. Yeah. And it it already exists, actually. Does it? Yeah, it does. All right. See? America, innovation. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so you're selling your bikes direct to consumer rather than, you know, doing some sort of shared mobility fleet service. Um, what do you think are the benefits of buying your own e-bike? Is the technology evolving so quickly that customers are going to find their bikes are like their phones where they sort of need a new one every two years? Or how, how do you see that market developing? Well, those are two really good questions. Um, I think I'll address them separately because they, they are related. Um, but I think our viewpoint on personally owned versus shared is that if you're using it enough, uh, we design our bikes to be what we call daily riders. So if you're using it enough two or three times a day, the math actually works out for you to own uh, instead of shared. Even though you know currently it's like VC funded, everybody's subsidized, it's sometimes free to start, dollar start, whatever. But if you use it enough, um, or if you're really realistically replacing like Uber and Lyft rides, um, the bike pays for itself within a year, no problem, at our price points, at our direct-to-consumer price points. Um, sorry, the second part was... Sorry, was um, the, the technology improvement cycle. Yeah, um, you know, one does. reason perhaps someone might not want to commit to buy an electric bike is the idea of, well gosh, you know, the battery technology or other things are going to change within a few years and I'm going to have to buy a new one. Yeah, so I would say yes and no. So there's two parts. One is that battery technology um, changes incrementally. It's not the same as, like, uh, transistors. There's no, like, um, Moore's Law law for batteries. (laughs) I think there's another law, but I can't remember it at the the time. But basically, battery tech is developed in laboratories. Like, my co-founder, Tim Chin, he's a... um, He's like this super smart PhD from MIT, and he's been studying batteries for like, I don't know, 20 years now? I, I don't know how old he is. I, I don't want to... He's been studying batteries for a long time. <laughs> and so the kind of general consensus, like what is developed in the labs at these research universities, takes 10 to 20 years to hit the market. And it's not because like the tech's not ready, but actually the manufacturing's not ready. So even something like the new Tesla cell, which was technically a Panasonic cell, we had those two years ago. Uh, and they're just starting to become retrofitted back to like a Model S. Uh, I think the Model 3s use these cells. But again, when Panasonic and Tesla created this in collaboration, they wouldn't make it available to anyone else. So it wasn't like the technology didn't exist. The, tech, the tech's out there. And it's not even a different tech uh, in terms of battery chemistry. It's actually just a different size format. But it's not widely available to everyone. So I think within e-bikes, we're lucky to have electric car adoption increase because that increases the overall worldwide manufacturing of these cells. And uh, as a startup, we're also lucky that we can take really kind of up-to-date stuff and try to put into our products as soon as possible, sometimes years before what the other brands can do. So, But the reality is, like, as a consumer, if you have a use for the bike, if you can actually see yourself using it kind of on a weekly basis, you should just get one today 
because waiting for it two or three years out means like there's always going to be better tech. Um, and at that point, do you keep waiting? Like, do you keep saying, oh, I know there's going to be something just around the corner? Or do you actually commit to it today and use it and get the value of that technology today? Our batteries kind of are designed to last, I would say, three to five years. And our design process, even though we've had now, I think we're on V2.2, it's not a full V3 yet. But the latest battery that we've created are retrofitable to our original bikes. So you so, could just swap out yeah, and get a new battery exactly. when the new technology comes out. Exactly. And the motors and the bike components, those things are just kind of more standard stuff mm-hmm. uh, that may not have changed in years and years. So for small electric mobility, there's a debate about form factors, you know, electric bikes versus these electric kick scooters mm-hmm. that Bird and, and Lime and others have have put out there. Um I guess I personally feel like there's room for a lot of different form factors because different consumers care about different things. Um, how, how do you feel about the kick scooters versus e-bikes? Um, and, you know, have you thought about other form factors? Yes. So we are always thinking about form factors and how to apply what I consider modern battery technology to um, new products that allow more people to use micromobility. So personally, I, I completely missed out on scooters. I mean, I think a lot of us did, and a lot of bike folks don't like to admit that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we actually, so we also try a bunch of stuff. Like as a, as, as a small startup, we're able to like just build a bunch of stuff that may never see the light of day. And I got a scooter, I'd say two and a half years ago. And we were testing them, and we looked at everything on the market. And the bird and lime, like their innovation is really not on the hardware, on the product. It's really on the business model because, you know, we've seen these scooters for years and years. We just never thought anybody would use it in that capacity uh, of a shared kind of like last mile transportation. There's also been folks in the industry who've been doing this for years and years um, in other formats. Like there's one wheel, there's uh, this boosted skateboards, which created a whole new category. But again, it was more of like, an entertainment thing versus a real transportation thing, but the founders have moved on and started skip scooters. So it's same technology applied to different formats. And it's always something that we're looking at and always something that we're innovating on in terms of creating new products. Again, may, may not hit the market, but we're always out there trying to build things that nobody's seen before. Um, and the future is that there is going to be this wide range of micromobility options because it does serve different customers. It serves, sometimes it even serves the same customers, different needs on kind of a daily basis. So someday I might take a scooter, uh, between my coffee meetings. Uh, some days when I have scheduled meetings in like, you know, Potrero and downtown, I'll take my own e-bike cause I know it's faster. Other days when I'm going from mission to Soma, I might take a shared bike cause I don't have to worry about locking up my bike. I don't have to worry about bringing my bike with me to the city. So I think there's going to be this Cambrian explosion of micromobility vehicles. And the really interesting work for us is to come up with that. Yeah. So, you know, there's a debate. I I think we were both at the micromobility conference. um, And, you know, Horace Didu has put out this definition of micromobility that I think is a a weight limit of up to about 1,100 pounds. And there's a lot of debate about whether micromobility should really encompass vehicles that might be that large. Um, 
You, uh, I think about 10 years ago, actually had another startup that was a three-wheeled hybrid between a car and a motorcycle called the Prong. Uh, So I thought you'd be a good person to ask, uh, how big was was that vehicle? How much did it weigh? So, yeah, you you found some stuff on me. Uh, (laughs) And you also know my affinity for puns. The Prong was a three-wheeler, and our weight target for it was... uh, 888 pounds. It's a very specific number, but it's also like a kind of a good luck number in Asian cultures. Oh, that's great. I I saw some videos on on Jay Leno's garage yes. with your uh, with your prong vehicle wow, back in the day, uh, and it kind of looked like a car to me, kind of a sporty um, race car uh, vehicle, and. You know, I think the criticism around having vehicles, you know, even of that size, much less 1,100 pounds, be classified as micromobility kind of turns on, you know, how does that vehicle intersect or interrelate with someone riding a bike or an e-bike, especially when we start to talk about having some protected lanes uh, as part of, you know, cities. Um how do you see the definition of micromobility evolving, and should it include vehicles uh, as large as uh, the Prong? So I would say the Prong was developed as a high vehicle, high speed vehicle, so highway capable, mm-hmm. uh, and I would not want it to intersect with a cyclist at <laughs> any point. Um, I think the definition is important, and Horace makes this kind of clear that he's still figuring it out. He, I think he's the tweet was because he was on the SAE. Um, con- council and it's important because like how we decide and it's sort of an arbitrary limit right to be honest if we decide to set it at 500 kilograms or 1100 pounds or we decided to set it at 100 kilograms or 220 pounds that by definition changes the game right it changes who is considered micromobility what's available to them what lanes are available to them what laws are available to them what restrictions are expected of them so it, it is crucially important to set the definition but again, I think there's going to be a wide range of vehicles. So the prong would technically be in the micromobility category. But for me, it's a completely different vehicle from what we're building today. And yeah, if we were building that vehicle today, it would probably be even, it'd probably be about the same weight, but it would be electric for sure. Um, and the reason we made three wheels is actually there's a kind of legal loophole that allows a three-wheel vehicle to be registered as a motorcycle. So I built it. And I registered, I went to the DMV and I had the police department inspect it and everything. And they were like, what is this thing? Like nobody knew what it was. (laughs) Um, But on paper, it was a motorcycle. Yeah, it's interesting. I think in some ways, defining micromobility by weight um, has some utility in the sense that you can uh, advocate for vehicles and sort of divide things into two buckets there are cars Mm -hmm. or car-like vehicles that are more than 1100 pounds and then there's everything else which we can call not car um and then you know within the not car category you can advocate for people to give up their cars and and adopt these smaller vehicles but i think within the not car category uh, it really is going to come down to regulation and policy around 
which types of vehicles can travel in which lanes. Yeah. So I'm not sure that the definition of micromobility as something less than 1,100 pounds necessarily means that you're going to have a, a big car-like vehicle riding in the same lane with your e-bike or your e-scooter. I think you can still make further distinctions on who drives where uh, by using in each community their local rules and and regulations around who gets to drive where. Yeah, so you're right. And I think the debate on Twitter kind of got out of hand because people were focused on uh, weight or mass. Uh, I think Robin Chase also brought up a good point about maybe we limit it on width because width Mm -hmm. is actually a, a bigger issue in bike lanes, like how much space you're physically taking up. Uh, for me, it's more about speeds and size, uh, what we consider keeping things human scale. Uh, for our customers, at least, it's like bringing a bike up to a third floor and walk up if you have to. Uh, you're not going to do that with a 100-kilogram vehicle even. So the the other point, though, is when we developed the Coben and the Coben S, like we were setting those based on speed, 20 and 28 miles an hour. And it was actually based on like some legislation that was going to pass in California. And at that point, it hadn't passed yet. But you know, our development cycles are so far in advance of when the products hit market that we had to make this decision. We're going to make a Class 1 and a Class 3 bike before these laws actually existed. So there's no point in making something to a law, right, if it doesn't exist. But we had a strong belief that that's how it would play out in, that, uh, in the U.S., at least, in California, and again, 12 other states, uh, e-bikes are regulated based on speed it's not necessarily based on mass so our 28 mile an hour bike is only 44 pounds but there's other 28 mile an hour bikes that could be 60 70 or 80 pounds or i think there's even some that's over 100 so a lot of people are still doing kind of diy bikes and the mass of it doesn't necessarily indicate anything outside of like battery size motor size uh, maybe build quality because you're using cheaper components you're using heavy steel um for us, I'm kind of what we call a weight weenie in the bike industry. And weight weenie is like just very focused on mass, almost obsessed about mass. Because for me, the mass of a vehicle changes the experience of it. So on my super light carbon bike, I have a different ride feel than on my you know steel city bike. And I think on our electric bikes, on the Karmic, you do feel different than on you know a jump bike or something like that. They're both 20-mile-an-hour bikes, but our bike is just more nimble. Uh, it's more controllable. It's actually safer, uh, given that it has less mass to control. And so do you think, as we start to think about regulation in the micromobility space, we should be um, doing some sort of um, uh, chart where you balance speed versus weight? And if you are heavier you have to go slower but if you're lighter you can go faster i think other folks have suggested those kinds of analyses yeah ideally it would be kind of a simple formula because i can imagine like if you let you know people set definitions on what micromobility is cities might have one definition states might have another and the federal uh, u.s law might be different and then it gets really complicated as to where we can sell because right now we're direct consumer we sell almost anywhere in the u.s we only sell our Class 1 bike in New York City, particularly, because New York City has a very backwards law uh, that doesn't allow Class 3 bikes, and that's a personal issue that I, I have with the mayor. Uh, <laughs> I tweet at him all the time. Um, but physics actually says that we should be, it should be the inverse, right? The bigger the vehicle, the faster it can go, because the mass supports the weight, or sorry, the weight 
supports the speed in a way. Uh, the lighter vehicles, right, like scooters, um, can't go that far and they can't go that fast. Or it's a trade-off, like based on your battery size, how fast and how far you can go. So with the lighter vehicles, like scooters, um, yeah, they they do right now already have a lower speed limit. I think that's from a manufacturing perspective, not from the legal perspective. Um, most of them do 12 to 15 miles an hour, which feels extremely fast on them. Um, <laughs> that's true. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, city infrastructure, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap up. What are the different elements of infrastructure in a city that affect cyclists? Is it, you know, quality of the asphalt in terms of, you know, potholes? Is it painted lanes, protected lanes, uh, special bike signals at intersections? What is the, you know, what is the wish list? What are the biggest impact items to promote safer uh, riding in cities? Wow, the wish list. If we can just go and like, basically do a Thanos snap, uh, we should ban cars. <laughs> okay. But All right. step one, the ban reality cars. is like, it, you know, that's going to take a lot of political willpower to do that. I think we're seeing that around the world in lots of capital cities like Oslo, um, and I think Helsinki and parts of Paris downtown, and uh, maybe I think Barcelona or Madrid. They're banning cars from downtown. And the impacts are immediate. Like Paris did uh, one weekend where they didn't let any cars down the Champs-Élysées. And it was immediate. People were walking around. People were riding around. The air quality improved. Like, you know, air quality improved within a day. Um, so I think the benefits are way, you know, very obvious. But I think the political willpower is not there to do that. So in the U.S., we're also finally understanding that protected bike lanes is the only way to go. Uh, protected bike lanes is the only solution to get non-cyclists uh, out on this on the roads because you know again the the bike commuter is a very dedicated person they might be a cyclist already they understand the risks and the rewards and they consciously make that decision there's also the kind of people who have to bike commute and they have to put up with the risk and you know you see this in la a lot where there's a lot of restaurant workers and you know um you know retail workers who are riding like down these crazy streets and LA is just a car town right and so people are going 40-50 miles an hour and you've got a poor guy like riding his bike on the side with no infrastructure no bike lane no protection no helmet nothing um, so protected bike lanes gets what we call the interested and concerned 62% of the population that would consider riding a bike to work but don't because they don't feel safe and again safety in numbers safety in infrastructure for sure um, the bike you know, signals, bike counters, all those things are really there for the city to justify the cost of it. I think right now, you know, with public transit, people think, you know, you can put money into projects like this that will never return money. And with the bike lane, it's different, though, because everybody's like, you know, why are we building these things? There's nobody riding bikes. It's like, well, it's the field of dreams, right? If you build it, they'll come. Mm -hmm. And once the infrastructure is there, and San Francisco's and New York are the two bright, bright stars in this in the U.S. infrastructure wars, is once you have these protected lanes, you do see usage go way up. Yeah, it definitely seems like a chicken and egg problem. Um, and it, it seems like the traditional cyclist community needs to lock arms with yes. the scooter folks. And yes. you get a lot, as I said, of this messed up politics yeah. where they're like, we don't like scooter companies because they're VC backed. Mm -hmm. It's like, mm -hmm. who cares? They're in your lane. Yeah, they, they're more numbers in your protected lane. Yeah. 
um, and they're advocating right along with you for this infrastructure. So it seems like everybody needs to, you know, get on board to to really bring that to yeah. bear in, in cities. Yeah, I mean, there's there's upsides and downsides of VC money, and I think you know, I, I joke that my Twitter feed is an intersection or a Venn diagram between bike Twitter and VC Twitter. Um, <laughs> but you know, as much as as much crap as I give VCs, like the funding that they've given and the business model that these scooter companies have deployed is forcing the conversation with cities, is forcing kind of the conversation around infrastructure, is forcing people to think and talk about it. Even if they don't agree right now, it's it's okay because this is early, but we're finally talking about it. And I think even like, I think Bird or Lime, one of the two, they're kind of interchangeable to me, has said that they will start to pay for infrastructure, which um, bike industry, no one's ever done this before. Like even the biggest two, which I don't need to name because everyone knows who they are, I don't think they've really put any money behind the idea of getting more people out on bikes besides, you know, as a way to sell more bikes. Um, so I think it's it's good to have a variety of vehicles because it serves different customers and it will get more people out of cars, which is the ultimate goal. Um, but the question of, like, what happens to the infrastructure in the future? Like, should people all be fighting over this lane? Should there be another lane in between cars and bikes? Or, you know, my dream is like there are no more cars. And so we all ride all over the lanes. Like, it's like <laughs> Great. Well, stay tuned for that. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to join us today. I really so. appreciate it. Thanks again to Hong for joining us. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts as it will help other people find the show. Our show notes for this episode and all episodes can be found on our Medium publication called Smarter Cars. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.